what I want to do this morning is I, I just want to ask you one question. Now, when you hear that I'm going to ask you one question, some of you get excited and say, ooh, this is going to be a short one. No, it's going to take me a while to get to that one question because that's how I roll. We're going to ask this one question, and this, this is a question that I wrestle with that at times just seems to haunt me. It's a question that I feel like I've got to find an answer to. It's something that I find worrisome. It's something that I find frightening. It's one of those things that, that makes me cry out to God, and, and I've just got to know the answer. So uh, here's what we're going to do for the next several, several weeks. This morning, as I said, I simply want to ask the question. That's all I want to do. I want to ask the question, and then next week, we're going to try to answer the question. It's not a, an easy question to answer, but I'm going to try to answer it. And then after that, for probably, uh, probably about three weeks, we're going to look at the, what the ramifications are to the answer to the question. I know all of this is lost on you because you don't even know what the question is. And I'm going to get to that, but it's going to take a little while to get there. But, but let's, uh, let's just uh, pray together, and then we'll... We'll uh, dive in. Actually, turn to Psalm 42 if, you, if you'd like to do that. And as you're turning, I'll, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you just for everything that you, you are and all that you're doing and all that you've done even this morning. We thank you, Lord God, that as we look into your word, that you're able to take your word and make it come alive in our lives. And Lord, that's what we're asking for. I'm not asking, Lord God, that we would gain knowledge Nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But Lord, I'm asking that you would, you would make it come alive. You would apply it to our hearts. That you, would, you would stir something up in us, deep in our innermost being, that you would do something, Lord God, that, that almost we don't even expect today. Just have your way in this place. Knowing every word that I say, Lord God, my, I'm weak, but you are strong. And we just thank you and believe in you, God, for all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn to Psalm 42. It's, it's going to take me a while to get the question, but let's start there in Psalm chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. It says this, a very familiar passage of Scripture. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. I love verse 5 because he sort of has a little conversation with himself. Anybody here talk to yourself? Uh, anybody here argue with yourself? Anybody here lose arguments with yourself? You need to get help. That's all I can say. But look what he says in verse 5. In the middle of all this that he's talking about, he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior, my God. Now, we know this passage very well, especially that first part where it says, uh, As the deer uh, pants for the waters, uh, so my soul longs for you. And, and in, the evangel excuse me, in the evangelical community at large, we, we like to take this verse and other verses like it, and, and we like to make it really cute and, and really pretty. And what I mean by that is, is that we, we, put a, 
picture of a, of a great big buck with a, with a huge rack, uh, rack of antlers on his head. And we put that on a t-shirt. And then on the back of the shirt, in cursive, we put, as the deer pants for the water, dot, dot, dot. And, 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 and I'm not dogging that shirt. Listen, if you own that shirt, uh, please for me, please, please God, I don't see anybody wearing that shirt. That's a good thing today. Uh, but uh, but here's, I, I say that to say this. We need to realize that this text isn't cute. It is not pretty at all. It's actually agonizing. We, we, we need to see, you see what's happening here. He's basically saying, I feel like an animal that's dying because of lack of water. I, I, I need to be in his presence. When can I meet with God? When can I draw near to him again? There is no indifference in this man. He's in agony, longing to be in that place where the Holy Spirit has filled him powerfully and he's walking intimately. And for whatever reason, he just can't seem to get there. He's frustrated and he's weeping and he's pleading and he's wrestling with himself to know God more deeply than he does. It's not cute at all. It's actually excruciating and it doesn't look like a t-shirt or a coffee cup verse at all now flip over to psalm chapter chapter 63 psalm 63 verse 1 this is david again writing this he says oh god you are my god earnestly i seek you my soul thirsts for you my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, this is a very interesting text because I, I don't know where to file it. And here's what I mean by that. There are passages of Scripture where men encounter God and they respond with reverence and with awe. Like when Isaiah, when he saw the Lord and, he's, and, and, and he had this vision and he, and he saw God on his throne. And Isaiah's response, he's, he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and, and, and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then the Bible says he falls on the ground like a dead man. That's reverence. And then there are other passages of Scripture where men have this kind of camaraderie, a sort of a, a friendship with God. Like James tells us that Abraham believed God and it says that he was called a friend of God. And then there are texts like this one that you don't know what to do with because it's not friendship and it's not reverence either. I'll explain what I mean. You know, I have a lot of good friends in here. Um, you know, looking around, uh, Lee Winders is a good friend of me, but, but here's, here's the deal. When I go to talk with him after service, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do that, that weird hug thing that men do where we hug each other and pat each other on the back three times, making sure all the while that our chests don't touch, you know, guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, and, and I'm going to say, Hey man, how are you? How's your weekend? How are things going? What I'm not going to do, I'm not going to walk up to him and say, 
My flesh yearns for you. My, my soul clings to you. Last night I was lying, as I was lying in my bed, during the watches of the night, I could not help but think about you. Yeah, that ain't happening. In, in fact, I'm pretty sure if that started happening, I would ha- I'd be looking for a job real soon. But can you see what, what the writer here is saying? It's not like a friendship. This is something much deeper than a friendship. It, it's like an obsession. You could, you could almost say it sound, almost sounds like lust. Earnestly I seek you. My flesh longs for you. And I think about you all night long. My soul clings to you. I mean, I mean doesn't that sound like somebody that's, that's completely consumed with desire for another person? And I know a lot of you are like, I, I, I don't know. I don't lust. I know not what you speak of. Trust me on this. It's, it's what it's like. He, this is a consuming desire. There's no indifference. He just seems to be lusting for more of God. Now, we, we could go to a dozen different texts, but let's go to Habakkuk. And I want to go there because I want to watch you try to find it. Um, so some of you are... Look into the front of your Bible, and others are singing an old Sunday school song with all the names of the Bible in it. But, uh, but Habakkuk chapter 3 is where I want to read. And we're going to pick it up in verse 17. And as we read this, I'll tell you this. This is, this is part of the prayers of, for my life. This is where I want my heart to be. I don't know that I'm there. I, I know I'm closer to being there than I was, you know, 10 years ago. But this is where I want my heart to be in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17 says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Now I find this text overwhelming and amazing because basically what's happening here, Habakkuk is basically saying, I don't care what life throws at me, Christ be praised. God be praised. If I have tons of food or if I go hungry, hungry, praise Jesus. If I have money in the bank or I'm homeless, praise Jesus. If everything's working well for me and I have great friends or if everything's falling apart and I have no friends, he says, praise Jesus. There are no conditions on his love for God in this passage. And I don't know how in the world, you know, the the prosperity guys deal with this text or most of the rest of the Bible. I don't know how you look at this text and and preach that if you follow Jesus, everything is going to be perfect and everything will go well. But Habakkuk says this. He says, in the end, who cares how everything else goes? I get God. Who cares? So whether I've got cancer and die at 33 or I live to be 104, praise Christ. And whether everything in my marriage is movie-esque and and we flutter about in in a romantic bliss or or every day is a battle as we become more and more like Christ and become free from the issues that we each have, whether whichever it is, praise Jesus. Let's go to the New Testament. Philippians chapter 3. We'll pick it up in, in verse 8. Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, now this is an interesting passage because he's asking a different question than most of us ask. He, he doesn't ask the question here, is this action right or is this action wrong? He, is it okay for me to go here or is it not okay for me to go here? He basically, he says here, he says, I pay attention to everything in my life and I get rid of anything that robs me from knowing Christ deeply, whether it is morally sinful or morally neutral. Listen, I want to tell you something. This may be a revelation for you, but asking if something is right or wrong is the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The question is, does this get me more of Jesus or does it rob me of knowing Jesus deeply? Does this get me more of Jesus or does it rob me of knowing Jesus deeply? See, the man who lives like this asks, does, ask, does my wealth prevent me and rob me of knowing Jesus deeply? And if it does, I need to start giving away some of my cash. Or does this group of people that I'm running with rob me of my affection for Jesus? And if it does, I need to change groups. Now, now look at this next line, because this is the line that Paul writes that just blows my mind. Verse 10. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, let me tell you why I find this verse so, so mind-boggling. The Apostle Paul wrote most of the books in the New Testament. He's the only guy I know of that walks into a city and preaches so powerfully that the whole socioeconomic system of the city shifts and people who are making money from sinful endeavors actually begin losing money and they start a riot because of it. At times, his handkerchief and his apron were used to heal people and to cast out demons. That's Acts chapter 19. He walks in a power and an authority in which no one we know today actually walks. And yet, in verse 10, in spite of all this, in verse 10, he says, I want to know him. I want more. And I read that and I'm like, you're greedy. That's what I think because, I mean, I'll take half of what you got and I'll die happy. He's greedy. Listen, I have been preaching for 35 years and nobody has started a riot. Not even a little one. Not even a little one. You know how happy it would be, it would make me if someone would just overturn a car and set it on fire because I was preaching the gospel so powerfully. Not just because I want to see things burn because I'm a guy, but because the gospel was so powerfully being preached that the riot broke out. Now, listen, this guy's hunger is insatiable. He's saying, more. I want more. I want more. I want more. I want more. I've got to have more. These men that we're reading want him. And then when they get to experience him, the very next day, they're back to longing for more of him. It's why they say really crazy sounding things like, to die is gain. Why? Because then I get the fullness of Jesus. 
so I can't wait to die. I mean, how often do you hear somebody say, I can't wait to die, and you don't call the police, you know, call somebody to intervene. But listen, this isn't just a biblical thing. It's what's happened historically as people have encountered Jesus and the fullness of who Jesus is. Let me read to you about some other guys. These are his, some historical examples. Like there's a man named Augustine. If you don't know who Augustine is, you can look him up and you can read about him. But Augustine wrote this. He said this. How sweet all at once was, all at, excuse me, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. That's a powerful sentence already. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasures, though not to flesh and blood. You outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any of the secrets in our heart. You who surpass all, not, not all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation, you who are sweeter than all pleasures. So Augustine had a sip of great wine. And he says, this is good. But Jesus, you're so much better. Augustine experienced sex and he says, this is good. But you're so much better. Augustine has wealth and he says, this is good, but you're better by far. And, and on and on and on we, go, we could go. He says, you, are, you who are sweeter than all pleasures. Not just you who are sweeter than all suffering, but he's saying, listen, you are better than the best thing I could ever experience in this life. Or let me read to you about Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this. He said, oh, I wish to devote my mouth and my heart to you. Do not forsake me for if ever I should be on my own, I would easily wreck it all. Or maybe you've heard of John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. If you don't know the story of how the book was written, it was written while he was in prison. He had a child at home who was physically challenged and a wife who had no way to make money during this time period while he's in prison. And all he had to do was to recant his faith, to, to take back the things he'd said about Jesus, and, and he doesn't, and instead he writes Pilgrim Pro, Pilgrim's Progress progress while he's in prison or Charles Spurgeon known as the prince of Pe uh, prince of preachers he said I thank thee that this which is an, a necessity of my new life is also its greatest delight so I do at this hour feast on thee or John Owen great Puritan theologian said this. He said, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live. Herein would I die. Herein would I dwell in my thoughts and affections until all things below come, become unto me a dead and deformed thing, no way suitable for affectionate embraces. Or there was a man named Brother Lawrence. He was a 16th century monk. Wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence. And he said this, this is a quote from that book. He said, I have at times had such delicious thoughts on the Lord, I'm ashamed to mention them. Now, I don't even know what to do with that. 
You know, I have no idea where, where, where to file that. It, it, it sort of almost makes me feel a little dirty. The first time I read it, I went and washed my hands, you know. I mean, just, I have, I have had such delicious thoughts on the Lord, I'm ashamed to mention them. Just don't use the word delicious and I'm okay with it, you know. So anyway, what we've seen so far is that men, biblically and historically, have been in agony and yearning for the things of God with all of their might, with all of their soul, with all of their resources, all of their time, with all of their passions. But not only them. I want you to see what's going on in the universe. Go over to Romans chapter 8, verse 19. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, subject, who subjected it in hope. Now follow me here. When sin entered the world, it's not just you and me that got broken. We all know that we're broken by sin, but it's not just you and me. The entire universe, every star, every mountain, every planet, everything in the universe was subjected to futility or, or you could say hard-pressed by God. So the moment sin entered the world, death and decay entered into the universe and God presses down on and subjects the entire universe to futility. So let's keep reading. It's a very, very, very interesting stuff here. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Okay, follow me here. All of creation has been subjected to futility by God and it remembers what it was like before the fall and knows that there is a time coming where it won't be like that anymore. And so right now, all of creation, every tree, the mountains, your dog at home, every star is groaning and burning and screaming and longing for Christ to return to remove the weight to which it has been subjected. So let the scientists say what they want about why the wolf howls. I think I know. It remembers. It knows that something's wrong and it wants the weight of futility lifted. The trees creak in the wind. The grass that you worked so hard to de-weed. The garden that you're working so hard to keep the weeds out of. The scriptures say it's groaning. It's longing. Every part of creation knows something is wrong and longs for restoration. And what I love about this text is this. Who does it say creation is watching? The answer is us. Us. Creation is watching the children of God, waiting to see the revealed sons of God, it says. What, what this is saying is that the creation knows that there's eventually coming a day when the last one who's going to, be, who's going to believe will believe, and then Christ is going to return and restore his creation. All of creation is eagerly watching you and me, and I'm here to tell you they're big fans of evangelism. Your dog at home is a huge fan of evangelism. All of creation is watching us. 
And every time another human being bends their knee before Christ, creation watches in anticipation. Is this it? Is this the last one? Is it over? Is it finally removed? No. Still waiting. Still suppressed. Still subjected to futility. Hurry, hurry, hurry. All of creation groans. And this makes, starts making sense of some of the things we see when we see the world, when we look at all the brokenness of the physical world. You see things like violent winds and hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and, and they're reminding us that the earth is broken and it's frustrated. It wants to be re redeemed. It wants things whole. Okay, so let me get to the question. My question this morning is not have men biblically and historically longed deeply for the things of God and paid any price to know Him deeply. My question is not about whether or not creation groans. The question that troubles me is, why don't we? Why don't we long deeply for God? Why are we so content? Why are we so easily distracted by stuff, by things, by circumstances, by relationships? Why aren't more of us terrified by the fact that Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll say to them, depart from me, for I do not know you. You know, I've been following him as faithfully as I know how for 40 years now. And yet still, there are those moments when I wake up at 3 in the morning and it's like, uh-oh, and i got to seek the Lord. Or what about where the Bible says in Hebrews 6 that you, you can experience spiritual things and not actually know him? Why doesn't it terrify anybody that Jesus says for the rich man, it's nearly impossible to get into the kingdom of heaven when all of us are impossibly, impossibly rich. And I know some of you are like, I'm not rich. Well, listen, take a trip with me to Haiti or El Salvador or almost anywhere in Africa, and I'll show you that you are rich. Did you know that the United States is 4.4% of the world's population, yet 35% of the world's cars are driven on our freeways? And we consume nearly 20% of the world's meat. I think I do about 5% myself. And then, and 24% of the world's energy, the average house in America, the average house, the building has grown 40% in the last 20 years, while the average size of the family has shrunk 50%. We've got bigger houses and smaller families. Why do we need bigger houses? For our stuff. Because we've already filled up a couple of storage sheds. So we got to have a bigger house so we can fill up our garage with all the junk and then park our, our, our multiple, you know, tens of thousands of dollar vehicle outside, only in America. Why is it that so few people pursue Jesus like this? Why, why do we seem so unmoved by him? Why is that something that so easily creeps in on, on my heart? Why is he so compartmentalized in our lives that it, that it becomes just what we do on weekends or it's just this cognitive belief system about how we operate a list of do's and don'ts. 
Why do so few men and women feel this way or walk in this or desire like this or pay the price these people paid? Why are we so unmoved? When I read these guys, and I don't think I'm one of them, I want to be one really badly, but I read about these men and women. I realize this. They walk in more freedom than anybody I know. Habakkuk, tell me about the freedom that, that Habakkuk is walking in. Habakkuk is praising God and he's full of joy if he's eating steak or he's not eating at all. He's praising God if things are going well or if things are falling apart. Or, or what about the Apostle Paul? He, listen, he had to be the most frustrating human being alive to any enemy of the gospel because they're like, all right, we're going to kill you. And he's like, to die as gang, let's do this. And they said, okay, well, then we're going to let you live. Okay, well, then to live is Christ. You know, I mean, what are we, here's what we're going to do then, okay? We've got to figure something out. We're going to pelt you with rocks. We're going to beat you with sticks. We're going to scourge you. And Paul's like, sounds good to me because the pre, these present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the future glory. So finally, not knowing what you do, you throw him in prison and he sings worship songs and converts your guards. What do you do with a guy like that? He's, he's just the most frustrating human being alive for those that are enemies of the gospel. But I would say then he's also the most free. He's not walking and bound in fear. He has nothing, no other desire than to, than to know Christ. To walk with him in intimacy. And he says, there's nothing you can do to steal that from me. So he's the most free. The man who's most free is the man who says, my life is not mine. It's in God's hands. And whether life brings blessings or curses, all that matters, all that matters is knowing Him. See, the, the gospel, we'll close with this. Mary Beth, if you could come. The gospel is not, if you do this, then you get this. The gospel ultimately is this. In the end, we get God. And he trans, transcends all that we wrestle with in this life. He's the goal. He's our pursuit. It's not we do this so that this happens. Surely life has taught us that that's not, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, think about Moses. He's faithful to the Lord and he leads this groaning, mumbling group of people through the desert for 40 years after God promised them he's going to lead them to the promised land. And then in the end, he doesn't even get to go in. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm Moses in that moment, I, I'm, I'm just a little upset and I'm talking to God. I'm saying, my part is the desert? My part of the story, how you want to use my life is for me to roam around the desert for 40 years with the most self-indulged, complaining people that have ever lived on the face of the planet? God says, that's your role. Now you're going to die and Joshua's going to lead them into the promised land. Or how about Jeremiah? He's known as the weeping prophet because every time he does what the Lord tells him, he gets beaten up or stripped naked or thrown into a ditch or a cistern somewhere. One of my favorites is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in prison and he sent his disciples. Remember, this is, 
Earlier, he had baptized Jesus, and he had said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, he's been arrested. He's been thrown in prison. He doesn't know what's going to happen, and the doubts begin to creep in. And so he sends his disciples, and he says, Are you the one, or should we look for another? He has already proclaimed this is the Lamb of God, and now, in the middle of his trouble, it makes me feel good that John the Baptist had those moments where he wrestled. He said, Are you the one? And Jesus says, Tell him what you see. And he goes on and he quotes Isaiah 60. And he goes through these things and say, you know, uh, the, the, the blind see, the deaf hear. He goes through this list of things. But then Isaiah 60, he quotes that, but he leaves off the very last line. You know what the very last line is? The very last line is, he sets the captives free. So the message to John, that's why Jesus said, John, don't, don't stumble because of me. Because he's saying, listen, yes, you're in prison. Yes, I am the one. But you're going to die in prison. What, what did these men get? What was it that they held on to? What did they get walking through the, their life with these issues? Well, the answer is they got God. And he was enough. Listen, God transcends all that we fear. Those things that grip your heart, those things that you worry about, God transcends all of those things. He's greater than all of those things. Anything that you worry about, anything that you're worrying about letting go, He says, listen, I'm more than that. I'm more valuable than that. I'm, I'm worth suffering through anything. I'm worth giving up anything. I am, I am your Creator. And He says, I am your God. And I am more than you need. Have you ever thought about how odd it was that the disciples get severely beaten and then leave rejoicing? I've, I've always related that to my own children. You know, I mean, how would I react if my kids did something, you know, I call them in and I give them a spanking and as they're leaving the room, they're saying, Woo! That was awesome! It's like, what do I do now? I mean, these guys, to get their skin ripped off their back and, to, and then to leave rejoicing that you're able to suffer for the sake of Jesus, it was because Jesus transcended being beaten with whips, having him, getting him, made any of that worth it. Or what about, what about Job who lost everything he had in a single day? And yet he falls on the ground and worships. Where are those, those men and women today? Why do we seem so far from them? My, listen, my great fear is that you and I, we get caught up in, in, a, in a wave of something that resembles what it means to follow Jesus. But in the end, is it really it at all? That we'll be caught up in a wave of religion and tradition and how we just, you know, have our list of do's and don'ts and we'll get caught up in that and, and it sort of looks like that, but it's not really about Jesus anymore. Why don't we long for God? And listen, I know that this message is going to cause some of us to really wrestle with some hard things. 
going to cause some of us to really dig deep into our hearts and say, where, where do my de desires lie? Is he really worth more than everything to me? And I think that's really the best possible thing that could happen to us. You know, why do we care more about what the House of Representatives and the Senate and President Trump are doing than what God is doing or what he wants to do? Why are men like this and women like this so rare? Why are so many of us right now just indifferent? That's the question. And listen, I know, listen, I, I'm going to, as I said, I'm going to leave you hanging. Next week, we're going to try to answer the question. But for us right now, this is not a message. I know this. You know, I would love to on Super Bowl Sunday, you know, preach some rah-rah message about teamwork and all this stuff. It'd be great. But this is, this is what the Lord laid on my heart. And I know we walk out, we're going to walk out of here and it may feel heavy. But you know what? Sometimes it's supposed to feel heavy. Sometimes the weight of the gospel should weigh on our lives. We should be able to look at Scripture and lay the Scripture down over our lives. And when it doesn't match up, there should be some weight there where we say, Jesus, help me. I'm not, I'm not who I need to be. So Jesus, change me. And maybe today that's our only response. To be able to look at, at the Scripture and at men historically and be able to say, Lord, I want to want you like that. I want to desire you like that. I want to be like David, to be able to say, like, like an animal that's dying of thirst, I've got to be in your presence. Maybe that's where it starts. Would you bow your head? Let's pray. Father,